Warning, the Federal Communications Commission requires that we inform you that this episode of the Derek Duvall Show may contain content inappropriate for children. Listener discretion is advised. The FCC also requires us to inform you that this episode may contain the words f***, s***, asshole, mother boy, dumpster, galloping quit, but in like a British way, and also, strangely, cul-de-sac. Once again, this show may contain content not suitable for anyone but the coolest children. Listener discretion is advised. Powered by Transistor FM. Welcome to friends, foes, and neither. Do not adjust your podcatcher settings, because what you're about to hear is real. It's the Derek Duvall Show! Prepare yourself for pop culture, commentary, and interviews featuring no drama and no controversy, guaranteed. And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Productions Bunker, it's Derek Hello there, Duval Nation. Hi there. Hello. Hi. Please sit. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome to the Derek Duval Show. I am Derek, and this is another journey into the lives of extremely interesting people. Okay, so full disclosure, as you can probably hear in my voice, I am recovering from a rather nasty cold that has quite frankly, knocked me completely on my ass. So forgive me for any sniffles or whatever you might hear at the beginning of this recording. Uh, not a whole lot going on in the world of the Duvalls. Our offshoot show, the Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies, released Robocop last week, and it was incredibly popular. I always kind of forget just how endearing that film is to an entire generation. So if you haven't listened to it yet, and you want a married couple's opinion on an 80s classic, give it a listen after this episode. As some of you have heard, I am taking the month of May off from recording interviews, but don't worry, we will still be releasing episodes as scheduled. I need a vacation, and with my birthday being in the month of May, it's the perfect time to unplug for a month. Our episode last week with singer Liv Ritchie was fantastic, well-received. She has dropped a new single on the streaming platforms 4AM. If you haven't had the chance to check it out, do so as soon as you can. It's fantastic. Speaking of other amazing things our prior guests have been up to, uh, while I've been recuperating from this nasty cold, which I'm sure you can hear, I got a chance to listen to Cassie over at Popcorn in Bed do a reaction to one of my all-time favorite guilty pleasures, the baseball classic Major League. It's as amazing as you can imagine, so make a note to check that out on her YouTube channel as soon as you're done with this episode. So let's go ahead and get into the meat of the show. This is episode 54. I know, right? Woo! We have on the show a very, very interesting guest. Now, we have on the show entrepreneur, speaker, author, Doug Cartwright. He'll be discussing his incredible past achievements, founding the daily shifts, his philosophies on life, and his popular book, Holy Shit, We're Alive, Now What?, I have been doing this show for a long time, and to be 100% honest with you, rarely do I identify with a guest as much as I did with Doug. This is an incredible interview, and some of the things we both have to say are incredibly real, and to be flat honest, incredibly raw and truthful. So let's just go ahead and get him out here. 
Please welcome to the show direct from Los Angeles, the founder of The Daily Shifts, author and entrepreneur, Mr. Doug Cartwright. All right, Doug, good afternoon. Welcome to the show. How are things with you today? It is a lovely day in Los Angeles, California, so I'm, I'm very pleased right now. I start my interviews with the same question, reflecting all the current climate and how it has been for you to navigate the COVID-19 world. It's actually been pretty good. I am very much into the personal development and kind of taking care of yourself. And so there was, even though I was deeply concerned for the state of the world and empathetic for those that were suffering the sickness, I remember my initial thought, I was actually living in Austin, Texas at the time when, you know, March 2020, when things, you know, made a turn for, to the left. And they were, you know, talking about shelter in place and social distancing. And even though I was scared and like, you know, I felt prepared, but I was actually, there was a sense of me that was relieved where it's like, oh, cool. I get to stay home, work on myself. And I have time to journal and meditate and eat healthy. And I had just gotten a Peloton, which was by the grace of the universe. It literally, I'm serious. Like this was, this was crazy about that is that I was on the fence about a Peloton for a year. And like friends had one, people liked them. And then I'm like, finally pulled the trigger and it got delivered to my house like March 5th, 2020. So like literally before everything closed. So I was so grateful to have that piece of equipment. So I was actually, you know, there's part of me, there's leaders like, oh, cool. This is an opportunity for me to really, really, really focus on myself. And you saw a lot of talk of people are like, all right, this is your time to like write your book or do your screenplay. And that's exactly what I did is I actually wrote, wrote my upcoming book, Holy Shit, We're Alive um, during that time. So it was a very productive time for me. That was a great uh, article I read the other day. I, th I want to say it was either the New York Times or the Washington Post, uh, for one of the great thinkers of our time. And he basically said that this pandemic, while it has been absolutely horrible for the you know humanity, mm -hmm. has also inspired a new renaissance period uh, with everybody at home. Like you said, wrote a book, wrote a screenplay. Several people who have interviewed on my show have written books. Yeah, and I agree with that because what COVID really did, whether you agreed with it or not or wanted to or not at some point or another it actually forced everyone to take a pause mm -hmm. right and we get so distracted in our current lives with the job and the family and social media and the news that we kind of just are on autoplay we don't have that moment to really take a pause and analyze where we're at and i think covid forced that upon us and what's really interesting is i saw a study on to add on to another study you read is that like i think it was 95% of all people are open to making a career change and are looking at that possibility. And I think the reason what would stem from that is that we had this moment where we were at home and we were really forced to have this perspective of our whole lives because people were dying, people were getting sick. And so people are taking their life into, a, into account. And a lot of people, I think, realized during this pause, like, wait, I'm not on track to where I want to go and what I want to do with my life. I have to quick ask because you mentioned the Peloton. Is that the one with the screen that you can ride around the country in? Or is that another thing I'm thinking? Oh, about? yeah. I mean, it's got the ride around the country. It's got the screen. It's got the work. I don't know if you've ever been to like a soul cycle class. But it's not like instructors. Yeah, they have instructors on the screen. And they also have like, you know, yoga and series of classes called bike boot camp, which are my favorite, where it's like you get on the bike and you spin. And it's like cardio for 20 minutes and you get off. And then it's like push-ups and burpees and squats and weights and presses. And you get back on the bike. It's like a hit training. <laughs> and I'm obsessed. I, I did it this morning. I'm obsessed with it. That's awesome. All right. So yeah. I want to take it back to the beginning. Uh, where are you yeah. from? And, and what was it like for you growing up? 
Yeah, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah, in uh, upper middle class. You know, my family had money, but we didn't have like crazy yacht, helicopter, private jet money. Mm-hmm. But we had, you know, we did, my dad did fairly well. Um, and everyone in my community was white and Mormon and conservative. And I was kind of raised in this happy little bubble. And um, I actually really appreciated growing up Mormon. I'm not active Mormon anymore, and I don't resonate with that religion anymore, but I'm, I was very pleased with my upbringing. And uh, a lot of really core fundamentals and values were instilled in me at a young age as far as you know, the importance of family time and being uh, an integrity and uh, the community aspect was really beautiful. And I'm really grateful for my up- Mormon upbringing. If people, when people ask me if I'm Mormon today, I just say it's part of my heritage. Right. And the Mormon heritage is unique, but my upbringing was great. And I was, I I felt very proud and that I was doing everything that I was supposed to do in my community. I was, you know, student body vice president at my high school. I was captain of the football team and wore the letterman's jacket and kind of took on a leadership role early on and kind of like I fit into the box that I was supposed to be in, if that makes sense. Yes. Which brings me to my next point, basically. My next question is, you know, at what point as you're growing up, did you decide you want to be an entrepreneur and take control of what we should call your first phase of your life? Yeah, so it's really unique because I had fit into this box and the first time in my life that I didn't fit into the box and actually went against kind of what my community expected of me is, and I'll tie this into the entrepreneur piece, but the, as a Mormon, you're growing up and you're supposed to go on like a two-year service mission. And it's like this coming of age ritual. And I don't know if you've ever seen the missionaries or the elders, what they call them in your local community, but we're all over the world. And so you have this moment where it's like you're called to be on a mission. And then it's very strict when you're on your Mormon mission. I got called to New Zealand, so I was in New Zealand, but there's no TV, there's no internet. You're, you're 24-7 focused on trying to convert other people to the Mormon faith. And before you go, there's this kind of standard of worthiness that you're supposed to uphold, uh, like no drinking, no intimacy with girls, whatnot, that type of thing. And I actually had broken the rules and didn't follow that, mm-hmm. but I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell my, my church leaders that because I had a lot of shame and guilt that um, I wouldn't go on my mission. That was kind of like shameful in my community. So I went out, I lied about my quote unquote worthiness and went out on my mission and nine months in, I felt the shame and the guilt of that so much for lying that I confessed on my mission. And then they actually sent me home, hmm. which is a big deal in the community. Like there's a, like, you know, shame on you for not finishing your mission. And you kind of, you're kind of looked down upon. And so my whole life, I feel like I was the stand up citizen in my community to now being like this outcast. I felt like I needed to prove myself again. And that's when I came across this opportunity, you know, after I was home, I was around 19 years old, this opportunity at this direct sales company, which was a door-to-door sales company that sold security systems contracts, you know, three-year contracts for alarm monitoring service, and they sold them door-to-door. And it was a 100% commission job. Mm -hmm. And I remember the light bulb came, I'll never forget where I was, the light bulb clicked for me when I was currently working as like a runner for a printing company where I had this big banner and drop off like printing supplies, letterhead and, and business cards. And I was paid, you know, hourly. And I remember talking to this kind of recruiter for this company and they were like, Hey, like you can get paid on production versus your time. 
Like, so if you're working hourly and you do your absolute best for four hours, you're getting paid the exact same amount. The guy that kind of like half asses it. Mm-hmm. Like, so here, if you come and commission sales, right, you get paid on how good you are. So if you're a really, really good salesman, you're gonna make a lot more money. And I remember like the light bulb switch kicked on. And the way that business worked, it really was very entrepreneurial because it was like, hey, you get paid on your personal sales, but you also, if you want to take on a leadership role and recruit people and have people work under you, you basically manage your own business. So it's like you're in charge of the training and the recruiting and the installation. So like when I was really, really young, it was this opportunity to like create a lot of wealth in my early years. And it was also subconsciously in my head. It's like, okay, if I can go make a bunch of money, which society says is a good thing, right? We, 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 we look up to those that are wealthy. It was almost like, okay, I can earn my respect back. And so from my early twenties, you know, by the time I was 24, I ended up doing so well at the job. By the, by the time I was 24, I had made over a million dollars in this job and accumulated much more later on where I eventually became the company sales trainer and got equity in the company and, and played that role. But it was very much this, I was trying to find a new identity along the way. And that's really where my entrepreneur drive came from. Some people define themselves through material possessions and then some with the size yeah. of the bankroll. Uh, you made a considerable amount of money, like you just said, at a relatively young age. Uh, what is it yeah. like to sit on that kind of wealth and success? It was interesting because it's like I never, you know, I was 1099 because I was I was running. I literally was running the whole company under my, a business that I had started. And so, you know, I was I remember when I was 21, I made almost 400,000 1099. And it was a shock because I literally went from like hourly job to 400 grand. I went from like 20,000 a year to, you know, 400,000. I did what any 20, 20 year old would do. You know, I blew it. Like I completely ripped through it. Cause it's like, I remember I had this mentality. It was like, okay, I'm 21. I've learned this skill set at this age. I'm now, I will always make this much. Mm-hmm because I've learned this skill set. And so it was fun. I mean, a lot of it was fun. I don't regret it, but I, I mean, I bought, one of the first things I did is I bought a, you know, C63 AMG Mercedes for like 120,000. And I was traveling first class all over the world. And I'm, I'm a big sports guy. So I was, you, you would see me front row at the Super Bowl, at the World Series, at the college football playoff. You know, I ended up, I think the peak of it all, you know, I went to Alabama Auburn on the sideline. And I think the peak of it happened when I was, I found myself, I was in Dan Snyder, who's the owner of the Washington Redskins. I was in his suite during the Super Bowl, the Patriots Seahawks game where the Patriots are uh, intercepted at the one yard line. And I was sitting next to Kevin Durant. Nice. And I'm like, wow, like what is goal? Like, what is my life? And I think the night before I was VIP at the top of the W hotel for a Drake concert. And I'm just like, this is crazy. Like, I have no business being here. <laughs> and I actually remembered Kevin Durant asked me at the game. He's like, hey, so what do you do? Like, thinking I was like a CEO of this business. I'm like, honestly, I manage and recruit and have this little break off of a door-to-door sales company. He's like, you do door-to-door sales? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, you're in the suite and you do door-to-door sales. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, damn, like, I didn't know there was money there. And I'm like, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> Tell us about uh, what about the uh, the daily shifts did you find most yeah. endearing i mean how mu- and how much work did it take to get it off the ground yeah so the daily shifts um i launched after my door to door piece and the reason i launched the daily shifts is what i kind of fell victim in the story i fell victim to what i call a coin is the success void and the success void is basically like where my life i already give you derek a resume of my life when i was 26 like a piece of paper it would have looked really successful. So 
I had a great car. I was traveling vacation at a nice condo. Like I was even going on dates with the Miss Runner Up of Miss USA and like everything looked successful, but I had like this really, really deep void inside my life. Like I never, I never felt enough. I didn't love myself. And I was like chasing this material wealth. And I realized I wasn't happy. So when I was 27, I took a, a lot of courage, but I decided to look another direction of life. And I really took like a mini retirement and dove deep into healing, which kind of seemed corny to me at the time. Like I, I hired a therapist. I dove into yoga. I hired a meditation teacher. I did neurofeedback. I worked with psychologists. I did yoga in Bali. I did a lot of like woo-woo spiritual stuff that some resonated, some didn't. I did really intense work in the psychedelic plant medicine space with shamans from the Amazon. And I really did this deep dive and trying to fill this void. And I found a lot of beautiful tools and techniques and modalities such as gratitude and breathing and meditation that really resonated and helped me. And where the dots connected were for me to start the daily shifts was I realized, you know, in my early 20s, I was very type A, successful goals, get every, you know, make all the money. And I learned a lot of valuable skill sets there, such as goal setting and leadership and how to really in salesmanship. And then I took this detour down like the spiritual self-help healing world and learned incredible assets like meditation and gratitude and learning to love yourself. And I'm like, if I could combine these two worlds, it could really equal out to a very well-rounded human being. And that's when I started the daily shifts. And so the way the daily shifts is today, it's a personal development platform based in mindfulness. So I'd work with clients one-on-one. I have an online masterclass. I have an 80-page workbook. We have a blog. We have a newsletter. We have challenges. And then we also have an app, uh, an app store called The Daily Shifts, which are your subtle reminders, your daily shift to get back to center, to get back into alignment. So it's gratitude practice. There's meditations. There's breathing exercises. There's goal setting. And so the whole intention of The Daily Shifts is to become the highest version of yourself, which incorporates you know, type A mentality, goal setting, being assertive while also having that baseline foundation of mindfulness as well. Okay, let's go ahead and take a brief break. This should give you some time to refresh the drink and to check out the website, The Daily Shifts. Give a listen to a few promos for two friends of the show, and we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kay. And I'm Jay. We all know that a lot of us spend most of our waking hours at work. So naturally, the majority of our stories come from the many different characters and situations we run into at the workplace. Because of this, we bring you the My Work Life Podcast. On this podcast, we will be sharing your stories from the workplace, no matter what they may be, so we can all laugh and commiserate together. Does someone at work have horrible habits? Crazy bosses that have no idea what they're doing? Hilarious blow-ups from coworkers? Even if you just need to rant, we want to hear it. Everything will be completely anonymous, so don't be afraid to spill your guts. That's right. All names of people and companies will not be disclosed, so send us your best. No story is too small. Email your stories to fmwlpod at gmail.com. That's fmwlpod at gmail.com. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your pods. For more fun content, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at FMWLPod. We can't wait to hear from you. Bye. Bye. 
go. Okay, follow me. What's the matter, you chicken? I can't jump that far. Okay, chicken, I'm leaving you here. Use your head, Sally. Lady J! There's nothing chicken about being smart. If you stop and think, there's almost always a better way. I use this plank. That's using your head instead of losing it. Now I know. And knowing is half the battle. G.I. Hi, I'm Dietrich. I'm Alex. And I'm Ben. We're from the podcast That Song From That Movie, the journey through the very best and worst of movie songs. We want you to join us on our voyage across the cinematic sound waves as we take a deep dive on a new song and movie each week to figure out just what makes them tick. Already we've set sail with Celine Dion on the Titanic, found a friend in Toy Story, and gotten drenched out in the rain with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Hopefully each breakdown allows us to answer the ultimate question of what's better, the movie or the song. Or at least learn something new along the way. Just like learning that Toy Story 4 is a meaningless cash grab without a soul. You can subscribe right now on all good podcast platforms. If you use one of the bad ones, then that's on you, and we can't be held responsible. Subscribe to that song from that movie. Welcome back to the Derek Duvall Show. We are going to go ahead and jump right back into our incredible interview with the founder of The Daily Shifts and author of the book, Holy Shit, We're Alive, Now What? Doug Cartwright. What's the craziest thing you have seen while you've been in business? It's interesting because there was this moment I remember I was down, like I thought I was doing well. Right. I thought I was making good money and I was down. I don't know if you're familiar with, have you heard of Lake Powell? Uh, no. So it's this beautiful lake on the Arizona, Utah border, like deep in you honestly look like you're on Mars. It's like, it looks like a different planet and people buy these houseboats that are like million dollar, like think of like super yachts. Yeah. And I was down there and I was seeing someone, it was, I can't remember who, who the owner was. I think it was some trucking company. They roll out this new, this new houseboat, and it was like a mega, mega million dollar, one of the nicest houses I've ever seen. And the way they would get onto their houseboat is they'd hire a whole crew to take it out for them. And then they, I remember being down there one time on another trip, and this guy coming in on his helicopter, being dropped off and having like this multi-million dollar view. And I remember thinking like. <laughs> this is absolutely insane what's going on. And just being able to be exposed and see that type of wealth and whatnot was actually really, really mind blowing. So I don't know if that was the answer you're looking for as far as no, like no. aesthetically materialistic, what was crazy, but that a, as far as like materialistic, that was crazy. But I think, I think another thing as far as it going internally, what was crazy was I think when, as I became more around that network of people in business, what was really crazy to me was realizing that how many people were seeing a level of success that I didn't feel like were that much talented than me. And like I said, the reason I ended up leaving Vivint at the time, Vivint Smart Home, was because I was so suffering from the success void. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I remember, I'll never forget the moment, Derek. I was actually flying. So I was like the man, I'm at the Super Bowl front row. I, I had just had that Kevin Durant. Seattle Seahawks Patriots Super Bowl experience. And shortly after, I was actually on an airplane flying to New York City to go to the NBA All-Star Game. It was maybe just a couple of weeks later. And I remember this was the, the turning point of my experience when I was on that airplane. And I remember not wanting to go and thinking in my head, the only reason I'm going to this All-Star Game is so I can take a picture and post it on Instagram. 
The I, only reason I'm going. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's uh, yeah. I, I have no words for that. That's that's yeah. That's profound. Yeah. And I felt, and that's when I had the void started to come in. I'm like, wow, I'm really feeling this void. Like I'm making great money. I've got a nice car. I'm kind of, I'm very like, I'm really like, I was a kind of famous within my industry. I remember I'd be out in places and people like, oh my gosh, you're Doug Cartwright. Yeah, your sales training changed my life. Can I take a picture with you? And I was like, I had that. I mean, not like globally famous, but like within my industry, I was well known and I was absolutely miserable, you know? And at that point I was spending money so fast trying to fill that void. I always thought like, okay, well, it's not the Mercedes that fills the void. Maybe it's the Porsche. Maybe so that'll help. Would it be a case of like, you know, like me personally, like sometimes I do those kind of things for exactly the reason you're saying, is it a need for validation that maybe, you know, I need to, someone to validate my success or would you say it's absolutely validation. And what's really the thing is once I, you know, I mentioned earlier on the call, like I took that two year sabbatical and kind of went and did this self healing work yeah. with the, you know, the meditators and whatnot. And what really came to the surface was I actually grew up as the fat kid. And it started when I was in second grade. I was overweight in elementary school and junior high and high school. And because I was the fat kid, I believed that I was unlovable. Like something was wrong with me. You, you can physically see that something's wrong with me. So that way I'm not worthy of success or worthy of love. So because I'm not worthy of love, I now have to prove to you why you should love me. And so, like I said, in my early 20s, I started making all this money and I finally had an asset my whole life, I was kind of I feel like I was never seen because I was a fat kid. And now I have money. And with money, I can buy things and be flashy and I'll finally be seen. So I spent all of my money thinking, okay, I just want someone to love me. So let me spend all my money. I'm yeah, this is going to sound crazy, but I would literally be like, because I'm single. And in my early 20s, I was, I would be on dating apps. I would match with a girl on a dating app. And it would be our first date. And I would pick her up in my $100,000 Mercedes. I would take her to Roos Chris. And then I'd buy her front row four seats to Utah Jazz basketball game and spend like $35,000, dollars on a first date. And all, which is insane. I would never do that now. But like it, in my mind, it made sense because I'm trying to show these women like, please love me. Please validate me because I don't love myself. That gets expensive really quick if that's the first date. They really expect, quick. They can expect the same thing on the second, third, fourth, fifth. So. Yeah, it was. It got it got expensive really quick. Believe it. But you know what? I I kind of empathize with you a little bit because when I I'm originally from like I said, I'm originally from Great Britain. When I moved to this mm -hmm. United States in 1990, I you know I I had this thick accent and I was still an awkward kid and I had a hard time fitting in and so forth. And it wasn't until I was in my my late 20s when I got out of the military that all the people that I knew growing up were like, oh, wow, you're, you're actually a pretty cool dude. And I'm blah, 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 blah. And that, again, then social media came along. And then like it constantly, you know, you know, the selfies and the doing amazing things. Like I got tell everybody about it and so forth that I've had to, I've had to work through that a little bit myself is that you're, you're constantly chasing that validation from people that you probably shouldn't even be concerned with what their opinion of you. And, and it really stems from the validation there's a big difference between needing validation and wanting validation. Because let's be real, like validation feels good. Yeah. Right. And we like it. It's, it's nice to be told that you're great or you're amazing or whatnot. And, that, and that'll always feel good. But there's a big difference is that if you need the validation where you're so empty inside, where you need someone else's approval, right, then you will always be miserable. 
Yeah. And what my book is about, holy shit, we're alive. A big man, a big point of the book that I'm sharing with is if you can true, and this sounds corny, I get it. But if you can truly, truly, truly love yourself at the core, you no longer need external validation. And when you no longer need external validation, it gives you the confidence and the permission to be the truest version of yourself because it doesn't matter what happens. So it gives you the confidence to go start your own business. It gives you the confidence to get into cooking or singing or whatever it may be and really take more risks because the outcome won't affect your personal value as a human being. And as I said, you just mentioned your book, which I'm I'm gonna say, holy shit, we're alive now. What is actually, in my opinion, I like I read a lot of books and it ranks yeah. in terms of titles, it ranks right up there with Mark Manson's The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F Word. Mm, um, thank you. Yeah, it, I'm not gonna lie. When I first heard about it, I'm like, that is a genius title. I loved it. So my question Thanks to you so is this. <laughs> welcome. Where did the genesis for this book begin and how long did it take you to write it? So I always tell people when they ask me, how long does it take you to write it? I always say 32 years, because that's how old I am. But the actual tangible putting words on paper, no, it's a year, it was a year long process. But I, one thing that I do, and I did have a little bit of advantage was I'm very good at taking notes along my journey. And as I especially stepped into the self-healing space, I was really good at keeping really deliberate notes and articulating my point very well. So it was really just kind of bringing a lot of my notes together and just organizing them in a way that made sense. But the reason I wrote the book is because, A, it is because I have some really, really fun stories. So even if you're not into self-development or self-healing, reading the book, it's, a, it's an incredible story because there was you know two and a half years of my life where I felt like I lived in the Truman Show. There was a lot of weird stuff happening. But for those interested in improving the quality of their life, the intention is to inspire others to go on their journey of self-actualization, right? And that your trauma, that everyone has trauma, because I think there's, you know, trauma is a sensitive word, but a, a consistent narrative I'm seeing among community and family and friends is that people compare their trauma, meaning let's say you had a traumatic experience happening as a kid that what may not have been super intense, but you can, you say you don't have trauma because you know someone that may have been like violently raped and their parents may have died. And it was like this really big experience. So in your head, you're thinking like, well, my stuff isn't a big deal because I've heard of X, Y, Z, which is way more severe. Mm -hmm. And so people discredit their experiences. They're like, oh, it's not that bad. But really, like that, those experiences you're having as a child that are really difficult. You know, for me, it was I was sexually abused when I was six, but it wasn't malicious. It was like a neighbor friend who was a little bit older than me that was just curious. So in my head, I'm like, well, that's not that big of a deal because I've heard of, you know, someone being violently raped, you know. And so I discredited it, but I didn't realize the effect it was still having on me. You know, and my dad died when I was in my you know, early 20s from colon cancer. I never really dealt with the pain and the loss of that. And I had to transition out of a religion where my whole identity was wrapped around it. And I had to leave a job where I was like the man. And so I guess the intention of the book is to, you know, once you really go in and deal with these hard experiences you've had in your life, right? It, once you really break through to the other side, it really equates to a beautiful, fulfilling, lovely, content life. And that's my hope and inspiration that regardless of where you are in your life, if you can just do a little bit, a little bit of work on your path, you know, it could really catapult you to a loving future. I've done some reading um, about you and there are some well-respected intellectuals out there 
that consider you mm. one of the great thinkers of our modern time. Um, how mm. does that make you feel when you hear that? Yeah, like I said, external validation always feels good, you know? Yeah, it's motivating. And really what it, it does is that it, it ins inspires me to help me realize that I do have special gifts. And I think everyone has special gifts. And I feel like my mind is an asset I have in it. And in regards that it gives me, makes me feel, gives me purpose and makes me have a obligation to continue to learn and grow and evolve and become the best version of me so I can share and help other people. Where other people have different talents, you know, there's music, music musicians and artists and poets and, you know, coders and everyone has kind of their thing. And for me, I think, being a, a strong thinker and a deep thinker is kind of my gift. And so it motivates me to, to share my message with the world. Uh, one part of your book that stuck with me uh, was challenging your inner worth and self-esteem. Um, mm. People who are listening now, right. And maybe looking in the mirror and not seeing what they like. Uh, what are ways that, off the top of your head that people can learn to better exercise self-love? Yeah. So I always think, you know, self-love is an absolute su superpower. And it is, and I just want to preface this, we're like, it's really difficult work. It's not like something you fix on a weekend retreat. Like, it's not like, okay, I'm going to write my affirmations down and it's fixed. It's a constant battle, but you can make incredible pr uh, progress. And I think it kind of ties back into what we've said a little bit on, on the call already, but a lot of people are outsourcing their happiness. They're outsourcing their happiness to their partner. They're outsourcing their happiness to their job title. They're outsourcing their happiness to a person, a place, or a thing, or how their body looks. And when you outsource your happiness, you never can be fulfilled internally. And so I think it's learning to love you. And not only just learning to love you, but it's learning to love past versions of you that you may feel like have messed up or made mistakes. It's also learning to love the current version of you. And the way you do that, I always say is like, okay, people are like, well, how do I learn to love myself? I always say, learn to love being alone, right? And I think that's a really good place to start because when you're alone and you have nothing to do and you don't have any distractions, right? These insecurities and these difficult trials and experiences of your past are going to come up and it's just learning to deal with them and handling them and being okay with them. And once, you know, a lot of people, I think I too believe this, Derek, that every human being their natural state if you remove all the baggage and trauma our natural state is happiness and love and connection but we have so many blockages inside of us that are blocking those lovely beautiful emotions from expressing themselves mm -hmm. and so it's going in and just removing these parts of us we don't love and learning to love these parts of us and slowly you know you, you start pulling out these rocks one by one and that allows the natural essence of love to express itself. I like that. I like that indeed. Thank very, you. Very powerful. I want to ask you Thank a question. You. And I, I, I thought about this a little bit uh, yesterday while I was doing my research. Where do you feel you are in your life right now? That's a really good question. I feel it feels intuitively, you know, especially with this book launch coming out, that I'm like feeling the momentum of this rocket ship, like preparing for liftoff. And I don't know where the rocket's going, but I know that I'm, I'm strapped up mm -hmm. and I'm along for the ride. And I'm very intuitive now that, you know, as long as I stay in integrity with who I am sharing a message of hope and love, 
while doing everything in my part to spread that, it's going to take you places I can't possibly imagine. And a big part of my book is talking about we can't predict the past, right? You know, a year and a half ago, Derek, at the beginning of 2020, if we would have sat down and said, all right, Derek, I want you to map out your 2020 for me. And we would have spent a week on it. We would not have gotten world pandemic. You know what I mean? Like, we can't predict the path. And where we suffer is when we're attached to our lives looking a specific way. I need to have this job title and this wife and this many kids at this age and have this much in my retirement by this time. And when that doesn't happen, we suffer. But really, we can't ever predict how our lives are going to go. And it's we're learning to surrender to the flow of life and trusting is taking us to high places. So at this point in my life, that's your question where I think I am. I think I'm about to level up and take it to another level. I have no idea what that looks like, but I'll answer the call that the universe has given to me. Nice. I do have one question. I'm I, I really, really interested in this one. Let's say just by hype in a hypothetical, you were able to do yeah. this all over again. What would be the first thing you would have done differently? Hmm. I hate, I, I like this question, but I hate giving the cliche answer because I feel like as grateful as I am for my successes, I'm also grateful for my failures mm. because I learned for them and it gave me the experience and we learn through experiences, right? You know, for anyone who's never lost their father, you can read a book on what it's like to lose a loved one. You can feel the loss through movies. You can listen to sad music so you can feel it. But until you actually lose your father, you don't know what that's like. And so that's, a, that's an extreme example. But if I could go back to my life, I feel like you know, every experience I had, whether I liked it or not, was teaching me and helping me evolve and grow my soul. And so if I could go back and redo it, I don't know if I would, or there's, I think I regret, and there's things I'm embarrassed that I've done that are like silly and like have a little shame for it. But the overall experience was teaching me a deeper lesson of how to learn to love myself and to let go of my past as well. And so I don't, I haven't that cliche answer for you where it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. So I end my interviews with my absolute mm -hmm. favorite question. I ask okay. this of all my guests. Okay. The question is this, if the entire population of the planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would want to say to the people of earth? People of earth, I would say, listen to your intuition and learn to build a relationship with it. There's a subtle voice, a subtle knowing within us that is trying to guide us to our best selves. And when you trust your inner knowing, when you trust your voice, it will lead you to a more beautiful life than you could come up with for yourself. I love it. So can you go ahead and tell my listeners how best to find you on social media? Yeah, so I'm not famous. So I don't have like a million followers. And so I have more <laughs> free time than most. So if you have questions for me, if you have questions for me on Instagram, hit me up and I'll respond to you. So it's at Doug underscore Cartwright. So Instagram is my main, main platform for connection. And then my book is on Amazon and it's holy shit, we're alive. The I is an exclamation point. And I would love for you guys to buy my book and I would love to hear your feedback on it as well. Doug, I want to, I want to thank you ever so much for coming on the show. I, 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 I was really looking forward to this one. So uh, this has been quite enlightening for me and I'm pretty sure hundred percent for my listeners too. So I want to wish you ever continued success, sir. Thank you so much for having me, Derek. And that brings us to the conclusion of episode 54. 
I want to thank Doug Cartwright for taking the time to come on the show. You can find his book, Holy Shit, We're Alive, Now What?, on the Daily Shift website, Amazon, Barnes & Nobles, or wherever you get your books. We'll be back next week with another fantastic interview. And also, be sure to keep an eye out for another Derek and Mindy's Fun With Movies coming out very soon. I'm going to go lie down in my theater room, put on Only Fools and Horses, and try to get over this cold. Oh yeah, I got the Blu-ray version of the movies that got released around Christmas, and they look stunning. No star, God bless, and let's hope I get over this cold soon. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, for the latest news on downloads and to explore past episodes. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.